there was one press release. They said, this project, it's preserving Indigenous people. And like, I think I'm like, we're not a can of beans. We are alive. Danse, and welcome to the Matriarch Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Shayla Olette Stonechild, and I'm super excited to be interviewing Sage Paul. She is an urban Venezuelan based in Toronto, and she's a member of the English River First Nation. She is the founding executive and artistic director at Indigenous Fashion Arts, which is a nonprofit that is focusing on Indigenous practices, but also birthing them in mainstream consciousness. We talk about what it's it's like being an indigenous person, designer, artist, working within the mainstream industry. And we also may or may not talk about the Hudson Bay Company. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, Sage Paul. I actually had the chance to model in Indigenous fashion arts in Toronto this past year. Honestly, being in Toronto and seeing so many Indigenous designers and Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people within the audience come together collectively through fashion and through storytelling, it was one of the highlights for my summer. And I'm being honest, I also spent way too much money at the market. <laughs> but that's something I'm trying to forget. I know. I still feel feel like I'm I'm making up for for all my purchases last year. <laughs> I'm like, can this be a tax write off because this is my work. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Sage, for being here. If you just want to introduce yourself, the territory that you come from, and what it is you currently do. Well, I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan, and it was such an honor to get to host you at IFA last year. So thank you for that. Uh, my name is Sage Paul. I am the Executive and Artistic Director at Indigenous Fashion Arts. We are a multi-platform organization, nonprofit arts organization that supports Indigenous people working in fashion, craft and textiles. Our biggest event is the festival, which you were at. And it's just such a magical experience. And I actually was just at a workshop making regalia with people. And there's just like something about being with community and knowing these stories that we put into our clothing and the reason why we make it that is just like so grounding and empowering and that's what I always hope to create at IFA and we've got such a great team that does that so really my work has taken me into I guess more like leadership trying to make things in place for our future generations and for those who are here now and taking those teachings from those that came before us and it's good although I started making I was I was <laughs> in fashion doing fashion and uh, this uh, has led me here yeah so that's kind of where I wanted to begin I know you do so many things within Toronto and the surrounding areas and I know your work extends beyond yourself into the community that you reach and so I'm curious to know, like, where did your vision for fashion come in? Like, that was, was that something that you envisioned when you were a child or was that later in life? Like, how did that all start? Well, I think it's been a slow burn getting to this point now. Growing up, we always went to, like, regalia making workshops or drum making workshops. And my parents made sure that we were always a part of the community. When I was little, my dad did this performance piece called Buffalo Jump Ahead, which just is about honoring all of the buffaloes that were thrown off the cliffs. 
But like through that, he brought together like all of these performers and musicians and artists. And we all made these awesome costumes and we got to wear stilts. I was nine years old. So I was like, oh, my gosh. And I got to be <laughs> fire because there were like all the four elements. And so it's fire on these these stilts. And we went down to the Scarborough Bluffs, which is where I lived uh, in Gabriel Dumont. And we threw these big buffaloes like larger than life buffaloes off the cliff in in Scarborough so doing things with community has always been really important just has been a part of my my life it's so important I think that's where I get the most joy is being with family I and I went to school for fashion and then when I was in fashion school I started working at the imaginative film festival and back then it was 2004 is when I worked there And it was the first time that I had seen like our stories being told through mediums that were just more relevant to me. You know, of course, I I grew up learning all of like our cultures and our traditions, mostly Anishinaabe, Hamdene, but it was still relevant to me. But it was always in very traditional ways. So to get to see our stories told in more contemporary ways, I guess, was really inspiring. And the team there was mostly Indigenous who really or like you're you're into fashion, do like here, do costume design. They really nurtured me. So I really I wanna pass that on and hope that I can do that. I mean, it's a lot of work. Oh my gosh. But it's really worth it when you see the outcomes of that. And so, you know, year after year I slowly was moving more into the fashion direction. And it was actually when my sister had Lucian, my nephew that just interrupted, we were doing workshops and we wanted to do high tanning. And we applied for this grant and they were like, well, we want you both to do it, but we want to see it have more impact. So we extended it to the community and started doing workshops with more than just me and my sister. And yeah, it just kind of grew from there. I really wanted to see our fashion on stage. And of course, I always have my own issues with the fashion industry. So I was like, (laughs) we need our own space. We need to do our thing the way we do it. It's uh, our stories. It's not about capitalism or commercialism. I mean, of course, we're a part of the economy, but really there's just deeper meaning, I find, to to our fashion. Yeah, and I find like there's often deeper meaning attached to it when you are creating within a community as well. Imaginative is a great example of doing that. And so I'm kind of curious to know a bit of behind the scenes, like how big is your team with Indigenous fashion arts? Like how did that come into existence? Because I know as professionals and as entrepreneurs, sometimes it does feel like we're channeling everything alone. And so if you can share that with other people, I think that's so important. And so who's your team at Indigenous Fashion Arts? How do you make this all happen? It is a lot, a lot of work. And, you know, it's really important that we're hiring Indigenous people to work with us. And during festival time, we are hiring about 40 people to help run the festival from everything from our workshops to the panel discussions, which you were a part of, to the runway. So it really, it takes a huge team in all different kinds of areas of production to create that. And our producer this year, Candice Scott Moore, has been with us since 2018. She produces so many events in the city. I bet everyone knows her in our communities. She does uh, Tech Toronto Music Festival. She supports with the Junos. We're so lucky to get to work with her. Throughout the year, though, there's three of us, program coordinator, um, an industry manager, and myself. So we have far less resources waiting until the getting to the next festival. So 
I often talk with um, Carrie Swanson, who is the co-founder of IFA with me. And she knew me since I was 19 years old, working at Imaginative. And she has always been this mentor to me and always been a role model. And whenever I'm really struggling with making a decision, because it can be really stressful, especially once you realize you're working not just for yourself. It's not like I have to choose an outfit that I think looks nice on me, you know, where only I care. It's like (laughs) people's lives are are impacted. And Mm -hmm. so I really have to make decisions with a lot of thought and having Carrie there to be able to talk things through. You know, she she is the CEO at the ISO, the Indigenous Screen Office. So I know that she's got the experience to help me through some really tough things that just come up when you're running a, a business. Things from like human resources to fundraising to to everything. There's just so much that happens. And I just try to take it one step at a time because there is a lot and I really don't want to get overwhelmed. And I've gotten pretty good at setting boundaries for myself being like no work on the weekends I will like make exceptions like our interview today <laughs> Thank you. But, but you know like it's so important to put those boundaries up and make sure that things are balanced in life because it is a lot of work and especially when you're doing like community type of work there's just so many people you know you can't please everyone of course we want to and so just making sure that we are following the values that are important to us to make sure that things are done thoughtfully. Well, and I think a lot of our teachings are about cultivating balance and harmony, whether that be in the natural world or within ourselves. And oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I may be the first thing to go. I may be the last thing to take care of. It's like I almost take care of the community more than I take care of myself. And so I think in this new timeline, it's really like, how can we fill up our cups so that we can support others? And I know that you will be supporting others uh, within the millennial Milan Fashion Week. And so could you tell me about your new partnership with, is it called White Milano? White Milan? It's White Milano. Yeah, I think, oh, I've seen it. it's called White Milano and the White Show. It's a luxury trade show that happens during Milan Fashion Week. And this is the first time that a Canadian and Indigenous delegation are going to be there. So so we're working with White Milano and the Embassy of Canada is uh, who's supporting us to get to go there. You know, they're based in Italy, so they they know how to work with Italians. Also with the project is just a lot of education. So we just want to make sure that we're doing the education and that the designers aren't going to. And I guess I should mention where seven designers are coming with us. And that's kind of the big thing. You know, there's so much on my mind right now. Just wanting them to be as successful as possible. And the show is pretty different from like a fashion show and and that it's Mm, it's trade you are working with um, buyers and you're it's sales right so it really changes the dynamics of how you prepare for a show also for us wanting to make sure that the industry is able to work with work with our designers in a way that works with our values So it's a three-year partnership with White Milano and Sage and Indigenous Fashion Arts is bringing seven Indigenous Canadian designers to Italy from February 24th to the 27th with the goal of increasing visibility of Indigenous artists during Milan Fashion Week. And so, Sage, why do you think it's so important to bring Canadian, well, not Canadian, Indigenous designers to the global (laughs) stage? (laughs) 
Oh, I, well, the thing that really drives me is just making sure that we are part of the greater economy. For me, it's really important to see community members thriving in the work that we're doing. And there's so much opportunity and potential. I'm also tired of seeing larger brands ripping off our communities and our culture. You know, it's us that has to be there. We have to be there to um, make sure that we're representing ourselves and, um, with this group of designers, we've been working very closely with them, who we're bringing as Evan Ducharme, Neil Perkins, uh, Section 35, Leslie Hampton, Erica Donovan from She Was a Free Spirit, Robin McLeod from the North, and also we're bringing um, Dorothy Wright, who is uh, going to come as a mentee, actually, for the program to, to get to see the, pro- the process of doing the whole mainstream industry kind That's of That's amazing. I can't wait to see the photos. I, I, You listed some of my favorite designers, and so I already know it's going to be a good show. Well, this is the thing with the trade show. It's, it's industry specific. So this is an opportunity for designers to get to sell to like Selfridges in the UK. I mean, HBC, if people want to. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's business to business just creates bigger business opportunities. So as opposed to making one sale for $500, let's say they're able to sell an entire collection. So I'm really hoping that they are successful in those big sales. Uh, So they'll only be bringing samples and they'll be talking directly to the buyers and all of the big retailers and all of the luxury retailers. Well, that was going to be my next question is how do you remain authentic and rooted to traditions while working within a very mainstream industry? I know this is probably pretty specific to each designer and they have each their own protocols and values. But for you directly, you know, how do you make these decisions within an industry that's changing rapidly as we speak? Uh, it, it is. It's just challenging because, you know, there's, of course, like capitalism and commercialism is just not a part of who we are and where where we come from. There's uh, there's trade and um, there's sharing and there's gifting. You know, we have these ways of sharing things, materials. Right. But it's just it's not based on gaining this ultimate amount of wealth. So it makes it challenging to go into the industry because of that you know there are things that just don't work for uh, independent designers like when a buyer buys something sometimes they'll purchase like a whole huge amount and if they don't sell it all they'll give it back to the designer which means you have all of this extra inventory and you lose that money and then you're stuck with selling it which is it's a waste first of all which goes against our values those are you know many designers just don't have the resources to keep that much inventory and then also it's about like what we're selling to the audiences and and who can wear what so we also have to be so mindful of what we put on the clothing and what is meant for a general public and what is meant specifically for an Indigenous person. I really try to listen to, well, one, my heart and just like, is this right? When I'm making decisions, I also really stick to my values. And IFA, we have our strategic plan, which includes all of our values and our mandate which comes from the very core of when we started. So a lot around reciprocity and curiosity, you know, we want to make sure that we're sharing and that there's still respect, right? And at the core of it for me is the artists and like what is best for the artists. And 
it's it's hard sometimes to think about that because you know if we are trying to fundraise for example because at IFA we pay artists all of their their fees to come participate so art designers don't have to pay to be a part of IFA we pay them um, and for this project to Milan we are it's the expenses are covered for all of the designers and so we have to get sponsorship but let's say it was like shell canada or something we're like hey that is like really not a great idea <laughs> they, they, they destroy the land and they exploit uh they're, they're just not great um but then i think about like my res has a resource energy company of some sort and in uranium and i always wonder i'm like is it okay to accept money from them because they hire my they hire my community members this is how they're able to work so like really have to think through every single little detail when it comes to entering the mainstream and knowing what our bottom line is when um, who we're going to work with and how we're going to work with them um you know like that's why you know we're working with simons and you know, we had to have a lot of meetings talking about how to work with Indigenous people and what we expect. And they were very forthcoming. And so we continue to work with them for that reason. Super challenging. And I think oftentimes people forget all the conversations that are happening behind the scenes and how much responsibilities are sometimes thrust onto an Indigenous person's shoulders. And it, we're meant to like speak for the whole nation when we actually don't, we, we shouldn't be speaking for the whole nation. So I definitely know how you feel. And and it really does come down to values for me anyways. When I'm partnering with a brand, I really look at what their values are. And then I'm open to dialogue to see if they're ready to shift maybe some of those values because I also know that the values are shifting within the fashion industry right now. There's a lot of talk around sustainability. There's a lot of talk about our future, the effects of climate change. And so do you feel like this conversation is shifting? What are you seeing on the other other end of things are brands now willing to step up to the plate and be more sustainable what what are your thoughts there well yes there has definitely been a lot of change because consumers are demanding it and you know there's only so much power that a brand has because once consumers start demanding things on a mass scale that affects profits so you we really are seeing those those changes where brands are being challenged to be more sustainable in their uh, labor practices where their materials come from their impact on the earth, their marketing and the way that they are representing themselves. And it's really nice to see that. So of course, I always worry, you know, the pendulum swings, right? If it goes all the way over here, when is it going to swing back? For IFA, really try to build up more of like an, an Indigenous fashion industry um, that doesn't completely rely on that mainstream industry because we don't know what's going to happen. There's just a lot of, it's unpredictable, you know, in, in five years, who knows what the trends are going to be and who knows what, what the state of the planet is going to be. But I do know in my heart and just from our, our traditional practices that there there is sustainable practices in our community. So I really strive to keep those at the forefront of all of the work that we do and and I have to deal with things like I wear fur and fur comes from my family or my friends families uh, the hunters and their families and then when I see someone posting online and they send me a message about 
telling me like I'm I'm disgusting, I'm a killer and and I hope they hope I fail. <laughs> like like people are really, really cruel I've seen, about that. I've seen some but, comments. Oh man, they and so it's pretty wild, but like it's just like not understanding the greater ecosystem that we're a part of and how we are sustainable in our own practices. And so I hope that by us just asserting our own ways of doing things, and even as being a part of the market, the mainstream markets, I hope that we can influence some actual change and long-term change. I don't want it to be a trend. Yeah, I think we extend far beyond just trends. (laughs) One thing (laughs) I did want to ask you about, you mentioned fur, and I know that you have a pretty powerful tweet out there and it's that the fur industry played a formative role in the creation of Canada indigenous women led the fur industry and I know fur like you said is a huge part within the fashion industry but it's also pretty polarizing a lot of people have different views when it comes to working with fur and so what do you think is fur's place in the modern fashion industry and especially when it comes to indigenous representation uh, that, that's a really big question. I like. I'd say first, from the mainstream perspective, I agree with why people are against it because most fur is mass farmed. There's the off gases and, of course, the mass murdering of animals and the specific breeding of animals for killing them. They don't use all the animals for food. Um. So yes, I completely disagree with that. But when it comes to our communities. You know, like my memories when I was a kid is my dad's like gauntlets with beautiful beaded work and uh, beaver and moose hide that my grandma made. And, you know, and we know that that meat was eaten and that they made dry meat and just ate it all the time. And (laughs) you're looking at some of the bones that was used for making the tools for the hide tanning. And so it just like those pieces aren't just about fashion it's not just about having something that's super valuable that it does come with that story it comes with that narrative that um, keeps us connected and grounded in where we come from and the values that we're talking about I know that my grandma made this and I know that someone hunted that that moose and someone ate that it fed that moose fed a whole family and our family gave thanks for that moose for for giving it it's life so that we could live. I really do wish that the industry was able to see the use of fur from that side. But who knows? I mean, it's, it's such a big conversation, right, to talk about animal rights and what that means. Some people are like, absolutely not, uh, no matter what. Uh, and uh, I just don't think that's the same in our communities. But yeah, Canada was founded on the fur trade. At one point, HBC owned the majority of the land and then it sold it to the Queen for like $200,000. It was the Rupert's Land Agreement. But none of those people, all of those colonizers or merchants or whatever they were called at that time, um, they wouldn't have made it if it weren't for our women. You know, like there's... um, a woman, Thenan Delther, who spoke Cree and Dene, she was Dene, Cree, Dene, and English. And she helped lead the HBC people in the North because mm. she knew where to get those best furs and she knew how to keep people warm. And she was, there was a lot of also peacekeeping between, for a lot of women who kept communities not at each other's throats. And I actually, I would cry about it for a long time when I, when we were just starting IFA thinking about that because just, the fact that it's scary to be in places sometimes as a Native woman, but 
But when you think about your ancestor, our ancestors, they made sure that we were here today. They led people through the harshest conditions to make sure that we were here today. I can only just give give thanks for that. So that to say, I am all about fur. I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> that's, that's why we're alive today. <laughs> Well, you just brought up so many thoughts of my own family history and my own lineage because my fourth great grandmother, Margaret, was actually taken in by the Hudson Bay and like she was fighting for her survival. It's a whole story. But without the Hudson Bay, she wouldn't have lived because they took her in for a month and they nursed her back to health and everything. So I find my relationship with the Hudson Bay is often too multidimensional and intersectional. There's so much trauma that is weaved into it, but there's also like technically my family wouldn't have survived without it at one point. And so I think oftentimes our stories are not one dimensional. There's so many intersections that exist within our lineages and who we are as indigenous people. But I do want to specifically talk about the Hudson Bay Company for a second, if you're comfortable with that, because <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Uh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but let's do it. <laughs> well, because I was approached to do a partnership with the Hudson Bay Company a couple years ago now. And at the time, I felt like they still had a lot of work to do in regards to healing that relationship with Indigenous people. And oftentimes, our story is pushed to the wayside. There's no mention of us within Hudson Bay Company. There's nothing given. There was nothing given back to our communities at that time. And so I know you sit on the advisory panel. Tell me a bit about that process. <laughs> I do not sit on the advisory oh, panel don't. for the HBC. No. So so they, they were doing an award. Uh, it was a, a diversity award. And they had released the panel, which didn't have an Indigenous panelist on it. And I, it was actually supposed to be me, but I had a lot of questions before I jo- wanted to join. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, and, yeah and they weren't able to answer the questions and in, and I actually didn't hear back from them at all. And so and then and then the announcement came out, and there was no indigenous person on the panel, which of course caused you know a, an uproar on social media, rightfully so. And they didn't really do much uh, from from what I see. And when I do reach out, I don't really hear a response. It's unfortunate now because HBC like it's using that heritage to profit off of to have some sort of grounding in Canadian history, but HBC is not, it's owned by Saks now. Mm, You know, it's a completely commercial corporate entity. I don't know how important the heritage is to the HBC. They gave their headquarters to an Indigenous group in Winnipeg for free, but it's a building that requires millions of dollars of work. So here they are giving this building, which actually is, is not free. It's actually going to cost that, that band a ton of money uh, to be able to actually use this space. And it just goes back to the, the point blankets, which carry disease and kill. So it's just like, it's, this, it's a gift that's not a gift. You know, they go around and say, this is what we've done and isn't this great. But honestly, I'm just I have I've yet to be impressed by HBC and um, any of their initiatives that they do. The only thing now that I can put in that uh, on that side 
is that they helped your mom or your great fourth grade grandma. I know, I yeah. <laughs> know. Other than that, I really have not heard anything that is redeeming of of them as a, the entity of, of the HBC. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I totally understand where you're coming from. I can also relay like a lot of those same feelings. I feel like there is a lot of work that needs to be done or maybe not even, maybe it just needs to dismantle itself, which it seems like it may be doing. Uh, but I think that is an example of uh you know, when working with Indigenous people as brands, you know, what is something that you look for or you expect from brands when saying yes to working with a brand? Well, the first is the relationship with the designer and basically what that partnership is going to look like. So making sure that designers are going to be paid and paid fairly and paid on time. Also want to make sure that there is no imposition on creativity uh, you know, we can still get into places where uh, brands will want to see something stereotypical. So we just want to make sure that that's not going to be a part of that conversation. Also in the marketing, making sure that we have control of that marketing, um, because there's there's things that, you know, people don't intend to say or do. They just don't know that they're saying it. There was one press release, I won't say which project it was, but they said this project, it's preserving Indigenous people. And like, I'm like, we're not a can of beans. We are alive. You know, it is sustaining us. It's maintaining our cultures and that which is still alive. And so for me, when I think about just the language, um, you know, making sure that a brand is aware that we are going to have that control over what that language is when working with us. Those are the those more creative sides. And when working, like building a collection or whatever that partnership is going to look like, just making sure that everyone is protected in the, in the entire process. And um, it's hard because a lot of the time we're learning, you know, we're learning through the process and we're going to make mistakes and we do make mistakes. You know, on the, that flip side, all of the designers that I work with really asking for, a lot of understanding and and care in the fact that we're stepping on new territory, you know, when we're, we're stepping into this industry that was not made for us, that was made to keep us out, actually. So we've got to we've got to work hard and push through it hard and we're going to have to make compromises, but not ones that completely overshadow our values. But yeah, so there's there's a lot when going into thinking about what kind of brands to work with and collaborate with. But I love how you mentioned like keeping your own sovereignty when you're working with other people. I think that's so important is, again, that we mentioned earlier, coming back to those values that you carry. And speaking of, you know, wanting to see the values that we carry birthed into a new timeline, what are you hoping to see within within Indigenous fashion in the future? Oh, my gosh. Well, I just want to see everyone thriving and laughing and happy <laughs> um, to, in, for an idyllic world. Um, but but seriously, I, I do want to see Indigenous designers successful and living off of this work full time. I think I, I see a lot of designers who are really hustling, just managing a lot. There's a lot on the plate. Usually it's Indigenous women who are designers who just don't have the resources and time to be able to make this a full-time thing when it is possible. It's just that we need to create that space, create this industry to make that happen. The biggest thing I'm really focused on though is making sure that IFA is stable and in you know 20 years from now when my niece is 
deciding what she wants to do and if fashion is something that she wants to do, there'll be a place for her to land. And I really want, I just hope that in the future, young people don't feel like they can't do something because there's not space for them. That was going to be my next question. I actually had one follower um, have a question for you. It was around your advice for, um, you know, a young entrepreneur wanting to get involved within the fashion industry. So what would your advice be for the younger generation that's wanting to dip their toes within the fashion industry? I would say volunteering and interning so that you can see behind the scenes. And educational-wise, I would say get an understanding of well, depending on the in areas of fashion, if you want to be an entrepreneur designing and running your own business, you really get a good grasp of business and understanding professional relationships because everything is relationship uh, based, whether it's with another designer or whether it's with someone who's sponsoring you. It's all relationship based and everything is a network, you know, and it's such a small community. So just making sure to always put your best self forward and and really get out there and ready to work hard because it is a lot of work. Um, and it's a lot of business stuff that's not fun. Um, <laughs> sorry, just to be realistic, you know, know, the number of days I'm sitting there trying to get our budget together and I'm like, oh, I have to see the numbers again. But really, like, it's those practical things that we don't really get to learn in school. Things like taxes, I know, marketing yeah. and and the like administration of things and just being organized is just it's so important. And I would say that has helped me a lot and knowing how to run a business because I learned from my mentors and I now prioritize making sure my my budget looks pretty more than me. <laughs> I need to take notes because I definitely did not learn about taxes and everything else in school. And so I can also relate. And it really does take a community and it does take your relationships to really thrive. But I'm looking forward to seeing Indigenous fashion arts thrive. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Milan. I can't wait to hear all about it. Can we expect a Toronto Indigenous fashion arts in 2023? 2024. So we're every two years. Okay. Um, we're going to be releasing our call for applications pretty soon. Well, it takes a long time for designers to make their, their collections. So really want to give that space and time to, so that they can make something they're really happy with. I also wanted to mention too about with uh, just to be on a more positive note with advice is like find a really good mentor that you trust and that you can ask questions, any question, just because they will really help you. Yeah, mentorship is something that I've even been finding throughout the last couple of years. And it really does help when you can even just have someone to just be an ear and just say, you know, this is what's happening. Sometimes they don't even need to have a solution. Just the ability to listen to someone is so important. And I know people listening will want to support your work after this episode. And so where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Uh, you can follow me on social media is uh, at Sage Paul. I have a website, sagepaul.com, but it hasn't been updated in a while. So just follow me on social media. <laughs> and Indigenous Fashion Arts is our handle and indigenousfashionarts.com is our website. 
Yeah, we'll be posting everything there. And also we're, we're doing a, a panel discussion with um, in Milan and it will be streamed live. So we will definitely be posting that onto our uh, socials. Uh, Marika Silla will be uh, performing there and um, we'll be talking about fashion. Amazing. It sounds like you're up to amazing things. And thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story and your journey. I know um, how important it is to listen to other people's stories and challenges and success. So thank you so much, Sage, for being a part of this and for being here. Hi, hi. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, hi hi, for listening to the show. If you like the podcast, check your podcast app now to make sure you're subscribed. I'm Shayla Olet Stonechild. You can find me along with more information on Matriarch Movement on my Instagram at Shayla0h or at matriarch.movement. My podcast producer is Katie Lore. Hi hi, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>